0: I want to have a comment here before we get into the text on the nature of expository preaching. Um, expository preaching is the art of making that which is plain in Scripture plain. It is also the art of taking that which is hard in Scripture to make it plain plain. And so as a preacher opens the word of God, and to the best of his ability, depending upon the Holy Spirit, as he explains the words on the page, what these words meant, and what they may mean now in our day, that is the essence of expository preaching. So, why do we do this? Because we believe that when God's people understand the sense of God's word, we believe that God uses his word to transform the inner man by the Holy Spirit. God's word has always been the chosen instrument to create, to convict, and to conform God's people to his will and to his own image. As we see this right from the very beginning, God's creative power when he speaks, the the words may be not written, but it's spoken, and creation happens. You have Abraham being called out of Ur the Chaldees and taking on a relationship with God. There was a transformative work that was working in those moments. We believe that God breathes the life of his spirit into his dead people by the preaching of the word. It's not my performance or my personality or anything. It's the Word of God through the Holy Spirit which opens hearts. And so we have to keep this in perspective. It is through the Word that the Spirit brings new birth. James 1.18 reminds us of this. God's Word saves us, 1 Peter 1.23 and 25. We desperately need the Word of God. because Romans. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We desperately need it in our hearing. So that's a little word on expository preaching. Why do we need the word of God in this manner, and why do we need to hear it? It's because the word of God is the ultimate authority. That might be a little bit obvious, but maybe it's not. The opinion of men is simply opinion. It doesn't carry the weight and authority of God. And it's really an interesting dynamic because God has given pastors to a church in spite of our human weakness and frailty to help give understanding to these words. And so, incidentally, I am also under the authority of the Word of God even though I'm standing here preaching to you. You are all underneath of the authority of God. We're all underneath of the authority of God of the Word of God. And so when we have a worship gathering like this, we we try to call out all the people that associate with this church family into a common sitting area so we can all be underneath of the same message, underneath of the Word of God together. And so when we listen, we need to listen with a submissiveness. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're expressing our love for God just like a bride expresses her love when she gives respect to her husband. It's a very similar image. And so it's important for us to realize that we are the bride of Christ here listening to our husband, if you will, not me, get me out of the picture, but the word of God in the in the message of Christ. That's for us here this morning. And so this morning we're picking up the word of God and it's like we had a little bookmark and we're coming back to where we were and listening to the message that Paul, under inspiration, was giving to that bride of Christ in Corinth. And we have the benefit after nearly 2,000 years to have this in our hands and to be able to listen to it as well. And so, Paul, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, he had received a letter at a certain point in time from the Corinthians, and we suspect that this letter was written as a response to the communication that Paul had received. Paul got this letter And so there were probably some questions or statements that they wanted some clarification on. And this is one of them. And how we know this may be the case, if you put your finger here, look over at chapter 8 and verse 1. He says, now concerning food offered to idols. So it's like he's picking up where another concern was and a question. Put your finger there and turn over to chapter 12. And he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I want you to be not to be uninformed." So he's picking up another topic of concern. And then you go all the way back to chapter 16. And he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. So concerning giving. So they had questions about some of these things in the life of the church. And now Paul is writing in response to this. And uh, we come to chapter 7, verse 1. And uh, I want you to know that when I was a young man growing up in the 80s, in the 1980s, not the 1880s. I'm sorry, that doesn't even fly, because... Anyway. This verse was commonly taught from the King James, at least the application that I heard as a camper, was that it was not good to hold the hand of another... of the opposite sex. It's not good to touch a woman. Now, that's literally what it says in the Greek. But that's not what it literally means. And that's why we need expository preaching. That's why we need to have expository translations that help us understand the original meaning. But uh, those you know, who have parents of teens might prefer the King James now better themselves, like myself with young boys. But I think it's wise to avoid the potential temptation of touch, yes, absolutely. There's certainly wisdom there. But this isn't the passage to bring that from because that's not what it says. I think it's a better practice action. It's far wiser to let the Bible say what it says. Don't put a hedge around it, but let God's word speak honestly into life. God has all wisdom and he knows what he's doing. He wrote the word of God. We didn't write the word of God. And so the big idea in this text, and I'm trying to pick up my pace here a little bit because we want to have lunch later. Um, It's good, I believe, that the big idea of this this little paragraph is. I've taken time to study it and thought it through is that Paul is saying it's not good for married people to live as if they are celibates. It's just not right. And of course we might say, well, of course it's not good for married people to live as if they're celibate. and But that would be too simplistic, a little bit too simplistic if we just left it there. Because this paragraph is not just highlighting a problem in logic, it's actually a gospel problem. In fact, 99% of problems in the church, problems in relationships, boil down to a failure to apply the truths and the doctrines of the gospel clearly. And so, in verse 1, if you have a handout, in verse 1, I've kind of summarized the thought here, and there's a problem here in verse 1 with this question. There is a tendency to equate spirituality with a self-discipline. Now what do the Corinthians mean by it is good? Well the word good can have various shades of meaning. Um, here it doesn't mean it, it's not like black and white, but it carries the idea of better, of desirable, or it's to your advantage if you don't have relations with a woman. So in other words, some in the church were advocating an asceticism as a mark of spirituality. Now, if you don't know what asceticism is, you simply need to know that it's, it's, it is a, a practice of extreme self-denial to your body. In fact, it, it can become an act of religious devotion, and asceticism at its roots is pagan. Because it's an attempt to release the soul from the bondage of the body so that you can engage with the divine. And that's, frankly, a pagan philosophy. And asceticism, more so, is a false gospel that has haunted the church for years. In fact, in the early era of the church, many of the early church fathers misinterpreted this text to mean that celibacy was like a higher spiritual level than monogamy. This unfortunately wasn't corrected until the time of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, some after the Protestant Reformation actually picked this up and carried it on, actually. There were some radical groups called the, the Shakers. Have you heard of the Shakers? They have little furniture things that you can get these days. But there are no shakers left. I'm not talking about salt shakers, sorry. But those little round, little baskety things that people used to collect, and I don't know if that's a thing anymore. But they believed that it was immoral for married people to have relations, and so you know the effect of that. Well, there's no, they died out. It didn't didn't work itself out. You'll catch that later over lunch. But asceticism is a subtle belief, though, that the cross is not enough. It's an inappropriate punishment of the body designed to boost your spiritual credentials with God and with men. And spirituality should not be equated with an austere self discipline. That's not what it's about. Turn with me, put your finger here, turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, I'm going to read a few parallel points in which Paul makes this point a little more clearly. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, is, why if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to those things that all perished as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't have a value because God is saving us with the Spirit and all of us all him. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. You'll also see another text here where, where Paul is, is, is communicating how it, he says now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who con, whose consciences are seared. Get this, who forbid marriage And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, does this mean that dieting is ungodly? No. No. Paul's concern actually reaches into the motives of the heart. It's really getting to that why we do what we do. And there are a lot of people who believe that self-discipline, even unbelievers, believe in self-discipline. But they don't actually do it for an interest in the glory of God. They're not doing it because they want to please and honor God. They're not doing it to take care of themselves. In the last chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, it should be on your page horizon. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's the command. Glorify God with your body, that's the idea. And so Paul is getting to the motivations here because glory is a motivation word. Now, what he's saying here in this text as we keep going is that celibacy, though, in marriage is not good. So let's look at the principle in in verse 2. In verse 2, we've seen verse 1, the problem, and now we're seeing a principle in verse 2. That the act of marriage was designed by God exclusively for marriage. Verse 2, let me just read it again. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, this truth goes against the grain of our human desire for freedom and independence. It's an authority issue. We want to be in charge of our own life and do life the way we want to do it. God says it's not the way it should be. In fact, you put yourself in a very vulnerable place if you don't follow what God commands. God has designed marriage relationship with covenanting together as designed to protect us emotionally and physically. See, God knows that temptation is real. In fact, to a, to a, as a father to a son in Proverbs, you can take some time to meditate on Proverbs. Proverbs six and seven, the two chapters, but I'm just going to pick out a few key verses that come out of there of warning from like a father to a son about the dangers. In Proverbs six twenty-seven to twenty-nine, um, Solomon writing says, "Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife; none who touches her will go unpunished." In verse 32, he says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it will destroy himself. Chapter seven, verse 21 to 23. He says, "With much seductive speech, she persuades him, and her mouth smooth talks, she compels him. All at once he follows her, and as an ox goes to the slaughter, or a stag is caught first till an arrow pierces its liver, or as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it's going to cost him his life. These are warnings, sent by God because He loves and cares for us, and He knows what's best for us ultimately. And so in this verse, chapter 2, Paul is laying out a principle that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It's reciprocal. So if you are married, God has given you a husband or a wife as a safeguard for you. If you're a married man, then God has given you a wife. And if you're a married woman, you have been given a husband as a safeguard. Now, some incidentally have used this text as a as a way of promoting celibacy as if it's a, of a higher level, because what is marriage? Is this simply a, an escape valve? I mean, just is this just for the people who can't handle life, you know, not married? And <laughs> that kind of argumentation reminds me a little bit of, as newlyweds, we were attending a Christian university in South Carolina, and some friends of ours who had been married after us, maybe within a year or so, um, Used to joke, it's okay now, we get a license. Well, that's not really that's not really the point. Uh, It's not escape valve, and and an escape valve mentality cheapens God's intention for marriage, too. Because marriage is much more than a license for intimacy, but Paul is saying in verse 2, it's it's not anything less than a license, but is certainly more than a license. And I think our society obviously has abandoned this notion that marriage is an extra. It's something that, you know, if it makes sense for your life, that you just go ahead and do it. But when we abandon what God has provided for our safety, we're not only disobeying what he commands, we're also hurting ourselves in the process. Number three, and I think this is probably where you're going to see the applicability here to your spirituality as well. There's a picture in marriage. And in verses 3 through 4, intimacy in marriage is a means, actually, to appreciate our triune God. Now, those verses talk about giving of oneself to the other. And I think before the sexual revolution of the 1960s i think intimacy was often seen as the the husband's privilege and the wife's duty i think this is actually very refreshing opposite to that view in fact the reaction to that way of thinking in the 60s while it went to excess of course is actually was warranted because it's not biblical It's not simply the husband's privilege and the wife's duty. It's also the wife's privilege and the husband's duty. Why is Paul making so much of this? Come on, this is awkward enough. Because marriage was designed by God and marriage intimacy also looks like God. Now, before you check out and run out of the room, I think you need to understand that intimacy of marriage can be a way of appreciating our triune God. Now, please hear me out. Have patience with me. And I want you to also to know that there are levels of intimacy. It's not just the act. All of our relationship pictures this. At the end of June, I traveled to Louisville, Kentucky, to take a class in Trinitarian history. Basically, it covered the view and the conflict about the Trinity over the 1,800-year history of the church, you know, minus the last couple 200 years. I just couldn't get everything in. But we read from Jonathan Edwards his treatise on the Trinity... It was written in the 1740s and 50s, and he lived just prior to the American Revolution. He was from Massachusetts. He was a pastor in Northampton and also Springfield, Massachusetts. He was used by God to begin an awakening of the gospel in in America, and many people were saved. He was a brilliant thinker. And he, he had an idea about the Trinity, a of, of way of expressing it that I think was helpful. Now, when you think of the Trinity, it's, it's a mystery and it's almost any language that you try to associate it with is not going to do the, it justice. So you've got to understand that. But I think that Jonathan Edwards did a really nice job and I want to share just a little bit briefly with you. He said, looking at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, he said, because God is love... There must be more persons than one in the deity for which he can place as an object of his love. That's clever. That's I think warranted. The beloved one. In short, God projected the object of his love, and that object is essentially it is a true person, it is Jesus Christ. The object of his love. When Jesus said in John 14:9 he said whoever has seen me has seen the father. And he said also I am in the father and the father in me. He's speaking of a dynamic relationship of being the beloved one. And Jesus said in John 10:30 I and my father are one. And so when God created man the scripture says let us make man in his in our own image. And so, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Wait a second. Us in our own image? Male and female? This is the picture. I don't know if you've been coming to the Sunday School class, and I hope you had the opportunity to see some of those uh, uh, presentations by David Platt. But... Two a week ago, you would have heard him talking about the equality in marriage and yet the unique roles in marriage, and Platt is absolutely right. The husband does picture the fatherly role, and, and the lady uh, pictures the, the servant role of Jesus and the object of the beloved one. That's the way God has designed this. But I have always been puzzled by where is the Holy Spirit in this? This picture of the Trinity in marriage. And Edwards was so helpful to me because he says that since God is love and he has an idea of himself out there standing as a distinct person, he says, this quote, he says, "...there proceeds a most pure act, an infinitely holy and sweet energy arising between the Father and the Son." For their love and their joy is mutual in mutually loving and delighting in one another. And that mutual delighting in its perfection is the Holy Spirit. Now, you might say, well, thank you for that. But how does this fit with marriage? Well, God has made within us an intense desire for intimacy on multiple levels and God has designed the marital intimacy to make the two become one and in the broader context in chapter 6 Paul has said "You know, the two will become one flesh so be careful who you're becoming one flesh with So he's saying that when when, when intimacy between a man and a woman occurs and they have great delight in one another, there is in that a display of the love and the joy and the happiness that exists in the Trinity. That is, the Holy Spirit is existing between the two. Now, I believe that intimacy is intended to picture that inter-Trinitarian relationship but I think it would be good for us to realize that marital intimacy is more than sex. It involves a spiritual intimacy where we're sharing together on the same plane delights about God, and we're sharing with one another in worship, and reading the Bible together, and we're praying together, we're worshiping together. There's recreational intimacy that can occur. I mean. Doing activities together, maybe it's biking or jogging or running or crosswords or walking or whatever it is, and you're enjoying that sweetness together. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit and the communion. You can have intellectual discussions where you, you, you know, maybe you don't like the Trinity talk, but some in here might love the Trinity talk, and if you talk together as a, as a couple, like my wife would love this Trinity talk. So, when we talk about this, we're like really intimate because we, we're thinking deeply about things. Emotionally, some of us are more emotionally built. So, when we share those emotions together, there's a harmony and intimacy and a sweetness that pictures forth the joy of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Holy Spirit. Now, marriage is not simply a license for physical intimacy, marriage exists for companionship in the picture of the triune God that we worship. And I am so thankful that he created it. To enjoy marriage is a great gift. And I will have a few words in a moment for those who feel, well, I don't really enjoy it right now. I want to encourage you later. But we need to move on. Verses 5 and 6, there's a pattern here. There's a pattern, there's... If faithfulness to intimacy in marriage, the very, the fact, you know, if we are faithful to intimacy in marriage, it's like a spiritual discipline, not a self-discipline, but a spiritual discipline. Now, I have to make a comment about verse 6 and then look back at verse 5 for a minute. But in verse 6, he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this some have interpreted this, which is kind of ambiguous, as referring to what will follow in Paul's flow of thought. But Paul very characteristically says this as a look backward. There's a tendency in Paul's writing to be more looking backward than forward when he says this. And so some have said, well, If he's referring to, you know, I wish that everyone was like myself and that really that marriage is just a concession. It's just, you know, it's for those who are weak and can't handle it. That's not what he's saying. He's actually looking at verse 5 and saying the normal pattern ought to be intimacy and marriage. But if you're going to take a break, do it for this reason and don't do it for very long. That's the concession, I believe. And it fits with his argument because he has made four very specific commands. And so, he's saying, this is the only concession that I'm going to make that is an exception to this command. What commands did he give? He said, well, regarding marital intimacy, a man is to have a husband. A man is to have a wife. That's a command in the Greek. Verse 3, he says... The husband is to give his wife her conjugal rights. The wife is to give her uh, husband his conjugal rights. Those are commands. And so Paul is saying here, as I believe and as I interpret this to the best of my ability, that this is the only legitimate interruption for short periods of time, mutually agreed upon, like prayer and maybe some fasting thrown in. In verse 5 it says, Do not deprive one another except for perhaps an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is here saying how important it is to be consistent in this, if you will, spiritual discipline, because what it does is provides a hedge of protection within your relationship and doesn't subject you to temptations. And with all these, there ought to be a mutual agreement if there is an interruption to this. And if so, and if you're not in mutual agreement, you're really depriving one another. You're depriving them of the joy and the happiness and the love. And at worst, as already mentioned, you might actually put them in a place in which they may fall into temptation. Into the temptation of Satan. Now, there are times in marriage where it's appropriate to make this concession, particularly in times of grief. There's time where you need to just reflect and pray. Maybe there's prolonged illness. Or maybe there's a need for repentance in one particular partner. And you need to have that time to, to get close to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit and do. there needs to be a working in your heart. And so it's important for us to understand that, that there is a concession here, not a command. And that that means that there are times when it would be most appropriate. And so Paul's argument is is really consistent throughout this whole little paragraph. It's not good for married people to live as if they're celibate. So what does Paul think about singleness? He's got an awful lot to say here about the married folks. What about those single folks? Well, I believe that in verse 7, he projects a possibility A possibility. That's in the blank there, number five, possibility. If you're single, when you come to Christ, consider whether God has gifted you with celibacy. So in verse seven, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. A gift. Marriage is a gift, as well as singleness is a gift. We must realize that just just because singles may have temptation, married folks have temptation as well. And no matter what calling God has placed you in, he's going to equip you for that task and that momentary position that you find yourself in. Marriage itself is a momentary uh, institution. When we go to heaven we will no longer be given in marriage as we understand it today we will have relationships but it's not going to look exactly like it is today paul is clear we must not equate marital status with spirituality now do single people do single people picture that trinitarian relationship they do And they do so in their relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, married people who may not have the best of relationships with their own spouse can actually still have an understanding of what this is like with their relationship with God and Christ through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to love Christ as the Father loves Christ. And our affections and our desires can grow for the one who loved us and died for us and gave himself for us. And so we can have relationship with the God and uniquely, and we can understand it and appreciate it. So single or married, Paul is saying, look, each of these in their context is a gift. Wherever God has called you into relationship to him, consider the possibility of how God has called you. And that might be that you have been called to singleness. And it may only be for a season. It may only be for a season. And it may be for a lifetime. A topic like this can be difficult, obviously, for obvious reasons beyond, you know, the obvious ones. But you may have had, for example, a very difficult past in which abuse has occurred. And even in marriage now, you might have a real difficulty in seeing how intimacy might be a way of understanding the Trinity. That might actually feel like a mocking thing to you. But if that's the case, we don't want you to suffer under the weight of anxiety and fear. We don't want you to to think that you'll never know and understand the joy and the happiness of marital intimacy. Christ is a healer of souls. And he can bring relief from the bitterness and pain that we experience in this life. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that's miraculous. But the way this begins is we've got to tell Jesus all of our sorrows, all of our cares. And secondly, you may need to come underneath of the care of someone, a brother and sister in Christ who's mature, who is a wise counselor, who can help you work through some of these difficult burdens that you may be bearing. I want you to know as a pastor couple, Abby and I would be happy to speak confidentially with anyone to take care of you we also want you to know that we also have availability at our disposal counseling resources we don't want anyone to feel like they can't potentially understand the joy that can be theirs in marriage i think it's important for married couples to remember that not all intimacy in marriage has to be sexualized we need to take that time to develop those covenant tools of companionship, of, of you know, recreation together, of, of spending quality thinking time together and listening time and talking time together. And as husbands, I know the challenge of that. I also have to work hard at that as well. Just ask Abby. But if you're single, don't think that God has abandoned you. Christ is a husband to all who call upon his name. And so I think it's important for us to understand these truths because through the cross and through the gospel, we are not spiritually less if we are single. We are not spiritually less if we are married. We are everything because of Christ. And so we need to develop a deepening relationship with God through his word. And prayer is a real means of finding that relational intimacy with the one who will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that's where it begins. And the journey couldn't be yours. And so I want to encourage you. Paul's writing this, answering questions that the Corinthians have had. And we want you to be able to find your questions answered as well. Seek me out. Seek a mature believer. We want to be a help in the journey of growth in Christ. Let's pray.